and turn with me to the uh, probably the first of several passages we're going to look at today, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew's biography of Jesus, first book of the New Testament, chapter 18. On February 1st of 2015, I brought the first message in a series of 10 that once a quarter we would stop our regular schedule and talk about the nine marks of a healthy church. What makes a church, an evangelical, Bible-believing church, healthy? And we walked through so far, eight of those nine marks. We have, today is the last one. It started out, the first one, with expositional preaching. In other words, not taking some topic that's popular and then finding verses to fill it, but rather going to the Word and letting the Word be our teacher. Out of that came the mark of a good, strong biblical theology. In other words, an understanding of God, of salvation, that comes from God's Word, not from our culture. And of all of those doctrines, the one that is pivotal to us as evangelical believers is what is the gospel? What is a biblical understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that was the third mark. The fourth then came out of that, talking about three parts of that, which was conversion. How does a person actually move from death to life? How does a person move from being not a follower of Christ to becoming a follower of Christ? That led us to the concept of biblical evangelism. How then do we go out? Based on what we know about the gospel and about how people are converted, how does that impact the way that we share the gospel with a lost world? Then we went through, after we got through the the first five, the last four have really been about the church itself. So we started out with church membership. What is church membership? Does it even matter if we have church members or not? Can we just all be attenders without some kind of commitment to each other? That then led from there to an understanding of if we're going to have members, what does it mean to to discipline one another with love and grace and humility as we seek in that commitment to grow together toward Christ, which then turns to one of its almost synonyms, although we don't think of them as synonyms, which is the issue of discipleship and spiritual growth. Both the word discipline and discipleship come from the same root word, which means to be a follower, a disciple, a learner of Christ. And now today we come to the last of the nine marks, and that is biblical church leadership. How is the church led according to Scripture? Again, we're doing expositional. We're looking to the Scripture so that the Scripture can teach us what it means. Some of you remember and had to read George Orwell's book, Animal Farm. One of those classic books that just about everybody has to read. It was written as a a discussion about communism and about the fallacy of a communist system where everyone is equal. And one of the great parts of that is when the pigs end up taking over the farm. Remember, they run off the farmer and his family, and the animals take over the farm, and the pigs become the rulers. And they have a phrase in there, in the book, that says, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And Orwell was pointing out the fact that in a system where everyone is absolutely equal, there can be nothing but chaos. 
that eventually there have to be those that are seen as leaders, whether it's in the government, whether it's in the home, whether it is in the, the, the school system, in any system where people are working together. Everyone can be equal, but there must be some within those equal partners who have been chosen, called out, selected to work as leaders so that the body can function and is true in the church. So the question that we're asking ourselves today is, what does the Bible say about authority and leadership in the church? Now, if you think, oh, this is the last of pastor's boring sermons on marks of a church, you just need to stay awake for about 15 more minutes and you realize the Bible has some pretty amazing things to say about leadership. And the first one is probably the most amazing of all. So I want to start i got about four things I want us to talk about. I'm going to put a little footnote at the end, but basically four things. And we start with the congregational context of leadership. The congregational context of leadership. Because when we look in the Bible, when we look at the church in the Bible, it is absolutely positively clear that there is a specific group that is chosen to have the final authority authority about everything under the lordship of Christ, of course, and by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I'm not taking God out of the equation. We're assuming that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Holy Spirit is guiding. But there is one body that is charged by Scripture, by Christ himself, to have the final say in matters about the life and health of a local congregation. And you know who that is? It's the congregation. It's you. It's not a bishop. It's not just one bishop out of a whole group. It's not some cluster group or some diocese or some association or some national convention or some denomination. It is the local body of believers. In the end, the people that have the most authority are the people that I'm talking to right now. If you are a member of the First Baptist Church of Waterloo, you ultimately have the final authority. And you know what? It's shown right in Scripture. You're in Matthew chapter 18. Look with me down at verse 15. This is a classic text where Jesus is talking about what, how to deal with conflict. But I don't want you to miss how it, how it impacts us when it comes to leadership. He says in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. And that word rebuke doesn't mean maybe what we think it means today. It really means go lovingly urge that person in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, here you go, tell who? The church. Tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. No one had the authority under Jesus' lordship to declare that someone was not a welcome member of a body of believers except the body itself. Now, just so you know, I'm not proof texting. On the next screen, I've got like four or five passages that we're not going to have time to read. But you're welcome to write them down so that we can see where we go from there. For example, in Acts chapter 6, we talked about Acts just the other day. In Acts chapter 6, and I'm missing the page of my notes. In Acts chapter 6, there was the story of the widows that were being, not, that were being neglected. And so in that process, the disciples said to the church, you go 
and choose people who can help with that situation. And even the apostles themselves, even though they were much more authoritative than a local pastor in today's world, they still said this is something the church needs to deal with as a body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking about someone who has sinned within the life of the church, a horrible sin that has been committed within the life of the church. And Paul says, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but it's interesting when he says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, Paul said, this can only be happened when the body of believers comes together and they decide. Well, by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, I think it's the same person that was, that was disciplined by the church. He has repented. Now he is wanting to be reinstated into the life of the church. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and catch the wording, listen very, very carefully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, the punishment inflicted by the majority is sufficient for that person. Did you hear that word? By who? The majority. Now, what does that tell you? In order for there to be a majority, you have to know how many people are present to vote, and then the majority of them said, this is sufficient. He should be let back in to the church family once again. People say, well, there's, there's, no, there's no voting in the, in the New Testament church. Yeah, there was, right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So the church made that decision. And then in Galatians chapter 1, Paul, after he greets them, gives a short prayer for them, he begins talking to them. He says, I don't understand how you have allowed this false teaching to come into your church. Paul did not write that letter to the pastors. He didn't write it to the elders. He didn't write it to the deacons. He wrote it to the church as the church and said, you have let this happen. How could you have allowed this thing to occur? So in the Bible, everywhere we look, the final authority in the life of a local body of believers is the congregation itself. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you right now very clearly, it doesn't matter what denomination you're in. In every denomination, everything from uh, from the Greek Orthodox Church, to the Pentecostal Church, from the Roman Catholic Church, to the Baptist Church, from the uh, Episcopalian Church, to the Lutheran Church. In every church, every congregation is congregational. You know why? Because whether or not they have the, the, the vested authority to make decisions, they vote with their pocketbooks and they vote with their feet. So in the end, the congregation will have the last say. And it's very important that we understand that is not a default. It is a tremendous responsibility. It is a wonderful but an awesome responsibility that the congregation, the local body of believers has to be responsible for what happens in the teaching and the life and the ministry of the local church. And that is a responsibility that has to be cultivated. It has to be encouraged. It has to be recognized. And so it's very important that we understand that the local church has the authority. But it's not always God's plan that the congregation should act as a committee of the whole. We can't make every decision as a body in a family meeting. We can't decide if we're going to change the time when the church office is going to be open or whether we're going to preach from Acts or from, or from Exodus this week or this month. We can't do everything. That's where leaders come in. 
That's where God gifts the church with a group of men who then are able to lead the congregation, always subject to the congregation's questioning, but also the congregation's trust. There's a wonderful passage in Hebrews, a difficult one to hear sometimes, in Hebrews chapter 13, where the writer of Hebrews says to the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, I know that's a, that's a difficult passage to hear. It's a difficult thing for us to talk about. But the bottom line is, is that when the congregation both entrusts responsibility on their leaders and then trusts them to do that, it makes the whole church function healthily. And that brings me to the second question, and that is, what is the biblical model for church leadership? What is the biblical model for church leadership? (sighs) Beloved, there's only one thing I can say about that. And that is that the Bible clearly teaches and models a plurality of overseers, pastors, elders, who are responsible for guiding the congregation in every local church. Everywhere we look throughout Scripture, we see this idea of there being a group of men gifted by God, carrying one, I believe, of five particular tasks or roles within this group of overseers, shepherds, pastors, elders. The words are all synonymous for the life of the church. Some of them are apostolic in the sense that they are visionaries. Some of them are more prophetic. They can take God's word and they can see and they can speak because of their life of prayer and study. There are others who are are more evangelistic in their mindset and their hearts are always looking out the door of the church toward the lost. There are some who are more shepherds in the sense they, 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 they thrive on caring for the flock spiritually. Others who are teachers, which means that they are preaching and opening God's word on a week-to-week, month-to-month, and day-to-day basis. And there's one passage that I've picked out, and if you'd like to see some of the others, let me encourage you to go onto your, if you have a smartphone or if on your laptop you have something like Bible Gateway or one of those other programs that will help you study your Bible, and just Google the word elder, and see how many times in the New Testament this word is used. Now, please, let me, we're going to get this just a second, but don't don't be thrown off by the name. It could either be elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd. The title is not what's important. The idea is there's this group of men called out by God, usually from within the congregation, who are seen to have the ability and the giftedness to be able to to lead and oversee the spiritual life of the church. But let me just show you one passage. Look with me. I'm going to ask you to turn there, although it's going to be on the screen. In Acts chapter 20, because in Acts chapter 20, we have a unique situation where we talk about this issue of the leaders in the church at Ephesus. So while you're turning there, let me just say a couple things. We're going to go to Acts chapter 20. I'll let you turn there while while I'm talking to you for a minute. One of the things that we often do in the church today, and one reason why a lot of times you don't hear as much talk as we talk about elder leadership about the word pastor, is because we have tended to equate the word pastor with what I'm doing right now. The pastor is the one that preaches to us on Sunday morning, in addition to other things. But actually, the preaching act is more a function than it is a title. The pastor 
really is not a title. It really is an, another function, which is pastoring, shepherding, guarding, protecting, overseeing, helping. But in Acts chapter 20, we have a really interesting situation where Paul is heading back toward Jerusalem. He's going there to stand trial. He stops at a place called Miletus, which was on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and he calls for the Ephesian church leaders to come from the church at Ephesus so that he can meet with them. And in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20, we see these words. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So there was a specific group of people who were referred to as the elders of the church. And he begins talking to them and telling them about what's going to happen, what he's done. He's asked for their forgiveness. He's explained that he's going to Jerusalem. And then he finishes out his conversation with them by giving them some wise, godly counseling. So if you look down at verse 28, he says to them, these elders, these leaders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, singular, that the Holy Spirit has appointed you to as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See how he used all three of those phrases in the same passage? Elders, overseers, and shepherds. So what are elders really, biblically? What are they really? Well, let me tell you what they're not. They're not an administrative board that runs the church. No, I don't know where we got that idea. I don't know if it's somewhere out in the Pentecostal wing of our church. I know there's some churches that have men that are called elders, but really they're the ones that run the church, the day-to-day affairs of the church. That is not the biblical model of elders. I'm not saying that they're sinning by that, but that's not what a biblical elder is. A biblical elder is charged with the spiritual watch care of the church. Some of them are teaching elders, preaching elders. I, as your pastor, and there's a place in Paul's writings where we see that there are times when one who is charged with the responsibility of preaching and teaching may in fact come from outside the church. Just to give you one example, remember in Romans chapter 10? How shall they hear if it's not preached? And how shall they preach if they have not been sent? And we often think of that as referring to missionaries, but it's not just missionaries. I think there oftentimes a church would send a preacher, a teacher, to another congregation. But the rest of the elders typically came from within the life of the congregation. You say, well, isn't that what deacons do? Not according to the Bible. In the Bible, the role of deacons and the role of overseers are two different roles. The role of the overseers is spiritual leadership and oversight. The role of the deacons is spiritual service and ministry, particularly to those in need, widows, orphans, those that are infirm, and providing for the administration of the life of the church. So there were these elders that led, and then there were the deacons. Now, let's go on to the next point. We'll have some more conversations on that another time, but let's move on from there. We know that ultimately the congregation has the final responsibility for how the church is governed. We see there are certain men who are called out of that that are called overseers. Now, what is the spiritual nature of church leadership? Well, the spiritual nature, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we've got to remember that the Holy Spirit is playing an active role in the life of the church. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, these different spiritual gifts. And by that, I don't mean certain very popular sort of kinds of gifts like speaking in tongues or this kind of thing. I'm talking about those gifts of administration and mercy and prayer and giving and, 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 and evangelism and helps. All of those gifts are given by the Holy Spirit, not just to the core leaders, but to the whole body. And they're always given for one very specific purpose, and that is to build up 
the body of Christ. To make the body stronger and healthier. And we've done sermons before, and we've had teachings before about the spiritual gifts and how they work, and I'm sure we'll have others in the future as we get back into Paul's letters at some time in the future. But the bottom line is, is that we need to remember that the way in which we function is not based on secular talent and ability. It's based on spiritual giftedness and ability. So when we are looking, whether it is for overseers, whether it's for deacons, whether it's for Bible study leaders, whether it is for people to serve on our committees and, and ministry teams, we're always looking for people that have spiritual qualities in them that can help build up the body of Christ. Beloved, I pray that gone are the days that when a bank president joins the church, the first thing we do is, well, let's make him a deacon. Now, if he's a godly man and humble before the Lord and, and is able to be, you know, great. But if we just do it because he's a prominent member of the community, he's the mayor or he's a bank president or he's this or that or whatever, well, he should be one of our deacons. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is that it's the spiritual nature of the leadership that matters from the person sitting in the pew all the way down to the person doing the weekly preaching. So where do we go to find a model of the kind of leadership that church leaders ought to have? Well, we go to Timothy, of course. We can look at that list. We go to Titus. Look there. Other places where we grab pictures of what leaders look like. But there's only one person after whom we can model our lives, right? And that's Jesus Christ. So how did Christ model leadership? I want to talk about this Christ-likeness for just a few minutes, and then we'll be finished. There's an acronym that I stole from Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., a man who's actually becoming a friend. We've actually emailed several times. Mark is a very, very busy man, a wonderful servant of God, but he's also been a very good help to me in some situations as I've been working on areas in my life as a pastor and in our role in preaching. But his acronym scares me a little bit. <laughs> so if you'll forgive me, let me give you a little explanation, and then you'll see why it scares me. The acronym that Mark uses at his church for the four roles of leaders is the acronym B-O-S-S, -S, boss. And you see now why, I don't, why it scares me, because I do not consider myself the boss of the church. But I think Jesus is the boss of the church. Don't you? Yeah. And under the boss, he puts people that are responsible for guarding and guiding the church. And so, for lack of a better acronym, I'm going to use Mark's and show you what I believe are the four roles that spiritual leaders, as we follow the model of Christ, should follow. So let's go ahead and start with the B. The B is just that. Somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to say, this is what we need to do. And while sometimes we don't like what that person says, we need to talk about it, we need to think about it, there's also that level of trust in our leaders that, you know what, that's why we called you. That's why we ordained you to be an elder or a pastor or a leader in our church, is that we want you to lead. And we will follow you unless you are going contrary to Scripture or something that we believe would be a detriment to our testimony to Christ. So every now and then, I hope not too often, I hope always with a lot of humility and a lot of grace, there are times when spiritual leaders in the church have just got to be the ones that say, we'll make the decision. But the O is out front. In other words, Jesus was always, one of my favorite passages in the Gospels is from Mark's Gospel. If I think, if I remember, I think it was Mark, it was Mark or John, I'm sorry, I don't remember, I didn't look it up, wasn't planning to talk about it today, but the Lord laid it on my heart. It was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and the Roman soldiers come. It's made very clear that Jesus put his disciples behind him, walked up to the guards and said, who is it that you're looking for? You see, that's a good leader. Some of you have seen my favorite coffee mug. Well, I have several. One of my favorite coffee mugs is from a Civil War battle when the Confederate general, General Armistead, troops are about to go in at Gettysburg. And General Armistead was not back on the hill ordering through an underling what's to happen. General Armistead got out in the middle of his troops in front of them on his horse, took his sword, took off his hat, put his hat on the end of his sword, and held his sword up so that every fighting man would see Armistead's hat in front of the battle line. And that is what gave them the courage at that particular battle, not the, not the end of Gettysburg, we know how Gettysburg ended up, but that particular skirmish, the South was successful because they saw a leader who was not afraid to be out front. And leaders should be willing to be out in front of their congregations, their church families, saying, follow our example. The S, first S, is for supply. One of the things that overseers do, one of the things that church leaders do spiritually, one of the things that Jesus does for us is supply us with what we need to do the work of ministry. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. And God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So one of the jobs of spiritual church leaders is to provide resources and training and discipling to the congregation so that you can do the work of ministry. I pray and hope that we have given Jake the kind of training and discipling along with his parents and others so that he now is ready to step into the United States Army as a light in his barracks. Let's pray that's true. And then the fourth S is serve. Yes, it is critical that a Christian leader be involved in serving. We serve God by serving the congregations to which we have been called. On the one side there's the boss, on the other side there's the servant, and the two go hand in hand. The passage that Greg read for us a few moments ago in 1 Peter chapter 5 speaks so well to this. When Peter says this, and let me just read it to you again. Therefore, as a fellow elder, Peter says, and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you. This is the leaders of the churches that he is addressing. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will, not for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And that way, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading final glory. Do you you hear all those points in there? Lead them. Be out front. Supply what they need. Don't be lordly over them. Don't be autocratic. Don't be dictatorial. Be servant-minded. But in your service, lead them. Guide them. Direct them. Help. Well, let me just close with one thought. And then one passage of Scripture from 2 Samuel. I want you to understand, you know, you have known me now for almost 12 years. And almost nine years as your pastor. First three as an associate on staff. You know, I think, if anybody can know my heart, you know my heart. Believe me, if I had anything to hide, you'd have already seen it. Okay? This is not about the mechanics of how church should function. This is not about some type of 
of a physical, secular way. Do we use the business model or the family model or the governmental model or the biblical model? No. This scriptural basis for church reflects the nature of God himself. You see, God created us in such a way that we need in our home, in our marriage. Let's start right there. Very first, most basic relationship in our marriage, in our home and family, in our communities, in our government, and in our churches. We need a structure where we have freedom to speak, but we also have those that lead us that we trust. Because you know what? You say, well, trust has to be earned. There's a side to that that's true, but you know what? There's another side to that too. Because in some ways, in the Christian realm, trust has to be granted. It has to be given. And then we pray that it will be proven worthwhile in the giving. And so David, as he finishes his life in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23, he has this beautiful passage. I know he's talking about kings, but I think it's true of any leader. Pastor, leader in a family, where he says, the God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, and listen to this beautiful passage. The one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. Isn't that a beautiful picture? When the pastors and overseers and elders of the church are doing the job that they need to do, it is a wonderful, refreshing experience. Because the congregation can relax and know that they're being cared for. They know that their overseers are overseeing them, literally watching over them. And the deacons are coming along and ministering so that the church continues to function in the right way. And so I guess the last question some of you are asking is, Pastor, are you saying that we need to have elders in our church? No. I'm saying we already have elders. They just haven't been affirmed and called out. Now let's go home and pray and find out what we need. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in your wisdom you created a model for what godly church leaders should look like. Their qualifications, their roles, how they function. I'm so thankful that you have already gifted, I hope gifted, I feel gifted, this congregation with three men who they recognize as overseers and shepherds. We also have unique functions that we play. Mine is different from Pastor Greg's. Pastor Greg's is different than Pastor Daryl's. Pastor Daryl's is different than mine. But Father, it may be, and I think more than may, that you are calling us to think about more deeply what does it mean for us to live a life like this? Ephesus, where we see men in the life of our church that can come alongside the vocational elders, the vocational pastors, and work together as one body to oversee the life of the church. Father, we can't do this on our own. We as a church cannot do this on our own. We need you. We as pastors cannot pastor on our own, Father. We need you. We as church members and followers of Christ who have been given spiritual gifts to be used for building up the body of Christ cannot do it on our own. We need you. 
And not just once a week on a Sunday morning when we're standing in front of a Sunday school class or in a committee meeting or some other setting, but we need you every moment of every day because we are constantly living out the gospel. So Father, help us to be biblical people. Help our church to be a biblical church, not a cultural church, not a denominational church, but a biblical, Christ-honoring church. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. If you're already here in the